Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. These questions and answers teach us that we have all fallen short of God's glory and his righteous standard as expressed in his law. This is why at every Lord's Day we come and confess our sins so that we may be forgiven. It is not an unhealthy preoccupation or, or, uh, with our sin, but the acknowledgement that we constantly transgress God's commandments and are in need of his mercy because God is a righteous God and does not allow uncleanness to enter into his presence. The Catechism also teaches us that some sins are more serious than others. Jesus said that the sin of anger against your brother without cause is of the same kind of sin as murder. But that doesn't mean that they are the same sin with the same severity. It doesn't mean that if you hate someone, you may as well go and murder them and do the deed because it's the same anyway. The sins of the heart are sin before God, but in God's mercy, they are sins that we can repent of without having inflicted the same kind of damage on ourselves and on our neighbors and upon our relationships as if we had acted out on those sinful desires. All sin is worthy of God's judgment, and all sin must be repented of. It is best to repent when the sin is in its seed form, in your heart, before it bears fruit in outward actions. That is one reason we come continually before God's presence, to be reminded of this. So let us give thanks to God for his mercy and his salvation in Jesus Christ, who offers forgiveness through his cross and by his spirit, enables us to please God. Let's begin in prayer. O Lord, open your word to us that we might learn from you. Let your spirit guide my words and my thoughts today, our thoughts today that your people might be enabled to do your will. Amen. There's a story in Jewish tradition that tells of of a wise woman who had a question. She had either read or perhaps heard in the synagogue from the Torah, the law of Moses, how Israel had sinned at Sinai with the golden calf. And she noticed that although Israel sinned only once in bowing down to the calf, it seemed that they died by three deaths. First, by drinking the water that had been contaminated by the calf ground into powder, and then by the sword of the Levites, and finally, by a plague that Yahweh sent into the camp. To learn the answer to this puzzle, this woman inquired of a certain rabbi, Eliezer ben Hyrcanus. Now, 
Rabbi Eliezer was one of the most highly regarded rabbis in the first century. He was so respected, in fact, that of all the rabbis who are cited in the Jewish traditions written down in the Mishnah and the Torah, uh, in the Talmud, Eliezer is the most cited of all of them. And so the Talmud records that this woman asked Eliezer, how is it that though only one sin was committed in connection with the golden calf, those who died, died by three kinds of execution? And how do you suppose Rabbi Eliezer answered her? He said, Woman has no wisdom except at a spindle, for it is written, And all the women that were wise-hearted did spin with their hands. In other words, get back to your housework, woman. Leave questions of Torah to us men. Now, Rabbi Eliezer's son was none too pleased with his father because apparently this woman was a very wealthy member of his synagogue. And so he spoke to his father in exasperation and said, just to avoid giving one answer about a single teaching from the Torah, you have cost me 2,000 bushels of grain in tithe every year. And we notice, of course, that his concern was not so much that a worthy member of his congregation had been offended than with the reduction of his own income. But Rabbi Eliezer is not finished. He answered his son, I would sooner burn the teachings of the Torah than hand them over to women. And that is the end of that story. Well, Rabbi Eliezer is regarded as a little bit extreme in how he viewed the study of scripture by women. His attitude reflects how many Jews thought in the time of Jesus. A different, a different Rabbi Eliezer, who was much more moderate, said, when you assemble the people together, men, women, and children, the men come to study and the women to listen. Even in this gentler perspective, the women are present only to listen and not to study. Well, I hope you can already begin to see the contrast these examples of first century Judaism have with our text today. In our gospel reading, Jesus is visiting a village that is unnamed by Luke. Though from John we know that Martha and Mary resided with their brother Lazarus in Bethany, less than two miles outside of Jerusalem, on the southern slopes of the Mount of Olives. Although from the Gospel of John, it seems likely that Lazarus would have been the master of the house, Luke chooses to focus on these two sisters, Martha and Mary. And so he tells us that Martha welcomed Jesus into her house. Now this is admirable hospitality. We don't know whether this is the first time that Martha has met Jesus or whether they were already close friends, but we see that Martha recognizes Jesus as a great teacher and that she should welcome him into her home to serve him. And we read that Martha had a sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Mary was seated at Jesus' feet and was listening to his word. And to be seated at the feet of a rabbi was the posture of a disciple. 
When you recall the earlier examples of Rabbi Eliezer, this is very striking. Eliezer would not even answer a woman's single one Bible question, but Jesus allows a woman to sit at his feet. Not only does Jesus allow it, but he affirms and secures that place for her. For we see that while Mary is sitting at the master's feet, her sister Martha is busying herself about the house. Luke says that she was distracted with much serving. Literally, she was being pulled this way and that way with much preparation. It seems she was hard at work making an elaborate meal for the Lord, her guest of honor. We can imagine the bustle and the clatter of dishes as Martha rushes about her kitchen, crushing herbs, making bread, boiling water. But the more she labored at her preparation, the more frustrated she became with her sister Mary, who was not doing any of these things to help with the serving, but was instead sitting like a disciple at Jesus' feet. Finally, Martha can take it no longer. She marches up to her guest of honor and says, Lord, aren't you concerned that my sister has left me alone to serve the meal? Tell her she should help me. Tell her that she should help me. She commands Jesus to tell Mary to help. There are two things we should notice about Martha's complaint. First, we might notice how focused on herself Martha is right now. My sister has left me alone. Tell her that she should help me. Now, Martha's heart really is in the right place in many ways. As we already saw, she invited Jesus. She's concerned with serving him a good meal. These are all good things to do. And yet, in her service, she has become inwardly focused. We can find here a warning for all of us. Works of service are good, but if our service is to be pure, it must be performed cheerfully without looking inward at ourselves. Not only does this mean that we should not serve in order to please others or so that others will see us, but our attitude in service should be to look to the ones we are serving and ultimately to the one that we are serving instead of being so consumed with everything that we are doing. If Martha had been more attentive to her guest as Mary was, she would not have responded in this way. If we remain focused on the Christ that we serve, we will be able to serve peacefully and cheerfully. Second, we can see that in asking or telling Jesus to tell Mary she should be helping rather than sitting at his feet, Martha shows that she really has the same attitude as our Rabbi Eliezer. Instead of considering the great privilege that Jesus is bestowing on Mary, in not only teaching her, but accepting her as a full disciple, Martha wants Jesus to tell Mary, get back to your housework, woman, the way Eliezer would have. Martha seems to be of the mind, perhaps even unconsciously, that a woman's place is only in the serving of the kitchen and the house, 
Martha, therefore, is doing what a woman should be doing, and Mary is not. Now, Martha probably wouldn't have put it this way, and maybe she would have been appalled at Rabbi Eliezer's treatment of women in his synagogue. But no doubt, that is why both Martha and Mary love Jesus so much, because he's so different from other rabbis. He receives them with love and care and teaches them freely. Nevertheless, Martha is perhaps unwittingly perpetuating here the attitude of Rabbi Eliezer. Considering this, Jesus' reply to her is so very gentle. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Martha is anxious. Her attention is pulled every which way, and she has no peace about her. She's in an uproar about many things. What, what many things is he talking about? Perhaps Jesus is referring here to the many dishes that Martha is trying to prepare for him. This matches what Luke tells us earlier, earlier that Martha was distracted with serving many things. So Jesus begins his admonition to Martha by first addressing the matter directly at hand. You are so anxious and in such a commotion preparing so many dishes. Now at this point, there are a number of possible variations in the Greek text, but some versions like our ESV simply continue, one thing is necessary. But in a number of versions, we see Jesus say, few things are necessary, or indeed, one thing. Now, this, if this version is per correct, then Jesus is telling Martha, it really isn't necessary to overburden yourself by preparing so many things. Only a few things will suffice. She doesn't need to work herself up with such elaborate preparation. Jesus is not expecting a four-course meal of challah bread and chicken broth with matzah balls and roasted meats with a side of olives and artichokes. A little bit of soup and a small portion of sourdough with dipping oil would do quite nicely, thank you. And so only a few things are necessary. Jesus is not insensitive to Martha's labors, but he is telling her that it's not necessary to go to so much trouble. But of course, Jesus does not stop there, but turns the instruction to spiritual matters. Only a few things are necessary, or indeed, one thing. This may be a case of typical Hebrew parallelism used for emphasis. We find this most often in the book of Proverbs. Six things the Lord hates, indeed seven, are an abomination. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four, I do not understand, and so on. By moving from a few to one, Jesus very gently moves from commenting on Martha's preparation of a meal to more weighty things. Indeed, only one thing is necessary. The one thing that Mary has chosen. Jesus continues to use the language of the meal. 
Mary has chosen the better portion. She has recognized the best dish in the meal and is delighting in it. And Jesus says it will not be taken away from her. Like a child who sits down at the table and finds the biggest, juiciest piece of cherry pie and mouth-watering, dishes it out on her plate. Mary has found the very best portion. And Jesus says, that's hers. No one is going to take it away from her. By pointing out Mary's portion, Jesus isn't shaming Martha, but he intends to awaken in her the same desire for the same portion her sister has chosen. Because unlike the biggest piece of pie, of which there is only one, there's plenty of Mary's portion to go around. Because the better portion that Mary has chosen is Jesus himself and discipleship at his feet. Surely, Luke wants us to remember Psalm 16, in which King David speaks of a portion in terms of both a meal and an inheritance. Psalm 16, verse 5 and 6, The Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. For the one whose inheritance is Yahweh, indeed, has a better portion than any other. Mary has chosen Jesus as her portion, as she sits at his feet as a disciple, listening to his word. We sometimes read or hear the word disciple without thinking much of it. Yeah, there were 12 disciples, we know that. There were other disciples as well. We should consider more closely what it means to be a disciple if we want to get the full meaning of this passage. In the previous chapter, Luke talks about the cost of discipleship. Someone who puts his hand to the plow but looks back is not worthy to be Jesus' disciple. Being, disi- being a disciple doesn't mean to be one of the crowd, one of the many hangers-on who follow Jesus from place to place, hoping to hear something interesting, or maybe just hoping to get a free loaf of bread. In the epistle to the Philippians, when Paul says he was a disciple of the great Rabbi Gamaliel, educated at his feet, Paul doesn't mean, oh yeah, there was this one time I was in the same classroom as Gamaliel, and I happened to be seated on the floor right next to where he was standing. What he means is that he was fully engaged in the teachings of Gamaliel. To be a disciple means to be a dedicated follower of a teacher. This was true of the Jewish rabbis and also of the disciples of the Greek philosophers. A disciple is someone devoted to learning the teaching of one man. It is possible that the language to describe personal discipleship began with the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all these had disciples, young men who would gather around them asking a continuous stream of questions about life, the universe, and everything. The Jewish context is not much different, except while the Greeks were enamored with philosophy and abstract inquiry, 
Jewish discipleship was far more grounded. The questions a rabbi would concern himself with were those of the law of Moses. When does the Torah teach that I should pay my workers? Is it lawful, according to Torah, to heal on the Sabbath? Or who is my neighbor, according to Torah? All the questions that people posed to Jesus were the same kind that people asked of all rabbis, because rabbis specialized in applying God's law to everyday life. The rules of the Pharisees were originally supposed to answer these practical questions of how to keep God's commandments well. But over time, they became bloated and weighted down as they became the rules and traditions of men. But my point is this. In a Jewish context, disciples were those who were devoted to the teaching of a rabbi. And the rabbi was entirely occupied with interpreting the law of Moses. And so the biblical view of discipleship is tied to studying and learning the law, learning the word of God, learning how to keep it and how to expound it. In the Old Testament, we can find language related to discipleship and devotion to God's law. In Psalm 119, we find that 12 times the psalmist uses some form of the word for learning, teaching, or discipleship under Torah. Psalm 19, verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Verse 12, blessed are you, O Yahweh, teach me your statutes. Verse 26, when I told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes. Verse 64, the earth, O Yahweh, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Verse 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. And so the psalmist continues 12 times over in the psalm. Teach me your commandments. Let me learn your statutes. The psalmist delights in the Torah and is an active and ardent disciple of God's law. In fact, even the word Torah really means instruction. It doesn't mean a law code, but God's instruction to his people. God gave the Torah so that his people might be his disciples, so that they might learn to do his will. To be a disciple, then, is to be a student of the word of Yahweh. Yes, you may be the disciple of Rabbi so-and-so, but that rabbi is supposed to place you under the discipleship of Torah itself. And how do you get to be a disciple of Torah? Well, in the Old Covenant, through circumcision, which brings you under the law, as Paul says in Romans 3, the value of circumcision is that the oracles of God were entrusted to the Jews. And again in Galatians 5, every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. Circumcision makes you a disciple under Torah, under the law. With this in mind, we can see what might lie behind the seemingly bizarre views and behavior of teachers like Rabbi Eliezer. It was obvious to Eliezer that only men are circumcised, 
To be sure, there's nothing in Scripture that prevents women from learning the law, but because circumcision is what brings you under the law, the rabbis understood that only men can really be disciples of the Torah in a full sense. With Jesus, it may seem at first that the meaning of discipleship is not essentially changed. Jesus teaches about the Torah, doesn't he? He teaches about the law. He answers people's questions about the law. He's called rabbi by his followers. He brings people under the instruction of God. And yet, with Jesus, there's something very different. Jesus doesn't speak like one of the rabbis the Jews are used to listening to. He doesn't cite endless precedent of other teachers who have gone before him in order to back his arguments. Matthew's Gospel account tells us that when Jesus delivered his great Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished because his teaching was so very different. Because he taught as one who had authority. No mere rabbi would ever dare to say, you have heard it said to the ancients, that, but I say to you, this. In other words, Yahweh spoke to your fathers at Sinai, but now I am speaking to you. Jesus' words are not a rejection of the law, but a declaration of what the law was intended to teach Israel. He is teaching Torah, but he is teaching not as one who merely expounds the law, but as the one who gave the law and who is now giving it anew. On that mountain, that mount of the sermon, Jesus is the new lawgiver, delivering more mature instruction for life in the new creation, which he is working to bring about. And because Jesus is himself the lawgiver, to be his disciple is not to sit at the feet of a mere rabbi, a household servant, delivering words of a great master. No, to sit at Jesus' feet is to sit at the feet of Master Yahweh himself. What else is changing under Jesus, the new lawgiver? Well, we've already noticed that Jesus welcomes Mary, a woman, to sit at his feet as a disciple. But if circumcision is the beginning of discipleship under Torah, how can he do that? Is Jesus being arbitrary? Is he just loosening the strict requirements of the religious leaders. Some would say, yes, Jesus just doesn't like boundaries, and so he goes around crossing them wherever he can. But that misses the point of Jesus' actions. What Jesus is doing is to prepare the people of God to enter into the new covenant, the new creation. On the mountain, he gave new instruction for new creation living. And in the same way, we see Jesus advancing God's plan for mankind in every aspect of his ministry. Now women, the same as men, can be disciples of the master. Well, on what basis? Obviously, not on the basis of circumcision. That brings you under the old covenant Torah. What is the boundary for new covenant discipleship? Well, we find the answer to that question in the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. No longer do you bring people under the discipleship of Torah by circumcising them to teach them to obey Moses, but you bring them instead under the discipleship of Jesus Christ by baptism. Make them disciples by baptism and treat them as disciples by teaching them to obey the instruction and commandments of Jesus. In this new covenant, who can be a disciple? Women were not circumcised, but are they baptized? Well, absolutely they are. Children, are you baptized? Then you are disciples of Jesus. Everyone who is baptized is invited to sit at the feet of the master, Jesus, to hear his words, to learn his commandments. And if you sit at his feet, like Mary, no one is going to take that portion away from you. In his ministry, especially in Luke's account, Jesus is engaged in the work of bringing near those who are far off. The social outcasts, the blind, the lame, the women, and the children. Jesus' ministry was all about tearing down the boundaries that separated people from God's presence. Ultimately, it is sin that separates us from God, but the boundaries set in place by the law by which only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, only priests could enter the holy place, only Israelites could enter the temple court, and only, if not lame or disfigured or unclean, all these boundaries were set in place because of sin and death, so that sinful people might not be destroyed by a holy and righteous God. But all those boundaries are removed when Jesus atones for sin, and the temple veil covering the Holy of Holies is split down the middle. Now in our one high priest, Jesus Christ, all are brought into the presence of God. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all are one in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that Jesus is just going away, blowing away all the societal structures given in Torah, as if he were starting some kind of hippie movement or social justice revolution. Jesus comes as a new lawgiver, but he was also the original lawgiver, Yahweh. And so the new law is built on the foundation of the old law. In the new covenant, we all now have full access to the Father through Jesus. But that doesn't flatten out who or what we are. Jesus is not saying that men and women are now exactly the same, or that they should have identical roles in the church or the home, nor is he saying that a quiet life of contemplative meditation on top of a hill somewhere is superior to work in the home, or at your place of employment, or in the civil or political sphere. Jesus is not disparaging homemaking, or the excellence of a well-prepared meal, or any other kind of work. Far from it. Withdrawing from the world and from daily work is not what discipleship to Jesus looks like. God's kingdom encompasses all of those kinds of work and calls each of us, he calls each of us to serve him in various ways and in various places. But he calls us first to sit at his feet. 
listening to his word at his feet is what teaches us how to do the work that we are called to do. And it equips us for it. If we are anxious and distracted about our service, we may become like Martha, overwhelmed by our own commotion and missing the point. We all have kingdom work to do, wherever and however we are called. But there is a time and a place for all things. There is a time for fasting, but not when Jesus, the bridegroom, is among you. There is a time to care for the poor, but the poor you will always have with you. There is a time for Martha to cook up a storm, but not when Jesus is sitting there teaching. When we are in the presence of our Lord, we pay close attention to him, and we listen to what he has to teach us. We can find his presence in the private reading of scripture, in our times of prayer, when we call to him from our closet, and most especially, we find him here, in the church, the body of Christ, where we gather together as his disciples. For it is here, in the assembly of God's people, that we come to meet Jesus, to sit at his feet, to hear his teaching as his disciples, and to receive our portion, the very best portion, at his banquet as we feast upon him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will continually draw us to the feet of Jesus, our Savior, that we may always hear and heed his words. Give us a desire for the better portion that you have prepared for us in him. For we ask in the name of Jesus, your only Son, our Lord, now praying as he taught us to pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.